Good morning and welcome everyone to another episode of 100 Days and Beyond, the podcast where we talk to really special individuals that work behind the scenes to make business work. Uh, today we've got a fantastic guest, um, Ian Kirkpatrick. Uh, very special set of skills, I think, in, in terms of logistics, supply chain, uh, even in in turnaround uh, from SME all the way through to large scale businesses, and if I look at your your profile, Ian, um, you've got, I mean, on, on the on especially procurement, logistics, and supply chain, etc. I think you're you're you got prolific <laughs> experience, if I can put it that way. Good morning, Ian. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks very much, Dudley. Yes, it's. Um... Certainly, uh, I use the phrase now 25 years plus rather than the exact number these days um, in uh, supply chain logistics for um, for big operations, as you say, um, big global uh, Japanese companies through to brands as Scottish Newcastle, Colt Retail Logistics and, and SMEs such as Stapleton's and uh, Kalina Group, um, uh, RS Components, etc. So all pretty much done operational supply chain logistics um, over the past 20 plus years um, before leaping across to the M&A world and taking on the role of uh, HR property and facilities director. And what I tend to say is the jobs that people don't really want um, was uh, my attitude as well. Why not? Someone's got to do it, right? Exactly right, and and I, I want to know a lot more about, especially on that that M and A and the transition that you've had to make from, sort of, let's say, I don't know if if say working in the trenches uh, and then get, becoming more strategic. I think over time, because especially with the current conditions uh, worldwide and all this the the pressures <laughs> across many sectors, I think it's it's been quite. Um, quite interesting. I just want to also touch on during our podcast, just for for our listeners who have, have, are, are, are tuning in. Um, Ian Kirkpatrick also, in, a, in addition to logistics supply chain, you also do sort of coaching and mentoring. Um, you're a qualified HR practitioner, and obviously people make a, a are important to you, and you've obviously got a, a background in that. And and I'm sure with the supply chain and all that pe people make a difference it's not just systems and and machines i'm sure it's got a lot to do with people and people doing things in in the right fashion so i'd love to touch on that um and then on the m a space i mean property purchase and sale and leasebacks cost reducer across all business areas com uh, commercializing back office functions to not enhance internal and external customer focus i mean those are those are very, very interesting um, aspects, and and I like your twenty five year plus. I mean, in order to have got that <laughs> amount of experience, you would you would need to have been in this space for a while. So, Ian, tell us how did you get into it? So, so, where did you start, and how did you get into this sort of this this space that's so fascinating? Look, I mean, it started uh, back in the day when I was a graduate trainee uh, in uh, food manufacturing, and uh, that moved on pretty swiftly to in the olden days, what they called dispatch and distribution. Um, and that's where I saw where logistics was was currently at that point was trucks and sheds, but it was a lot more to that because at the end of the day, you've got to get a product from A to B at the right time, right place and right cost. Um, and one thing that I found that would often um, trip that up is the people. Uh, and, you know, many people would say to me, logistics is, e is really difficult. And I said, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's buying the right product. Um, it's putting it in the right place. It's selling it at the right place and delivering it on time in full. The difficult bit is the people. Um, and if you can win the people, you win logistics. And uh, that, that, that sort of kind of then dovetailed into the sort of leadership programs and, and the interest in HR in particular. Um, but all, all through what I've done, there's always that element of what's the single biggest cost nine times out of ten in a business people um, and what, what are the things that can really stop a business from working people and even in a modern day of um, robotics and AI in, in warehouses you've still got one thing in common which is people operating uh, the machines or operating alongside the machines so um, I've, I've learned that over the years um, 
if you can put as many systems and processes and uh, invest as much money in property as you want, um, but that doesn't make doesn't mean that the customer service is going to be correct at the end of it, uh, and that's what's key. So you have a kind of a swingometer, as I call it, from sales, 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 through to the people aspect, through to the uh, the end result, and and you know that runs through mergers and acquisitions as well so um that, that's a key point to take away in mergers and acquisitions the first place you start with is, is people um i always break it into people process finance customer no particular order mm. but um start with the people first and the communications that go around successful m a's so so just just as in your start of your journey young ian at school i mean what did what was the what was the dream and and, and and how did you get how did you get into this get into this space yeah i wanted to drive a train um i think uh, th th there was always that element of what what do you do and, and my background was um uh very medical base my my, my brothers and sisters were all a medical fraternity um and my my father was in commerce and um uh nuclear energy and things like that and and he decided on my behalf really that what what are you good at um are you are you good at dentistry are you good at uh, being honest? well i don't know you know i'm 16 17 what do i know i'm pretty good on the rugby pitch so that's what i know and he said well that's why you're captain of the rugby team you're pretty good but you also lead people um so find your journey uh, along that um and and he was very matter of fact in sort of saying just get yourself a foot in the door get a degree um and and then go on from there you'll find your way no one knows what they really want to do until they grow up and uh, you know some people still say to me today when he, what are you going to do when you grow up um but um i think from the age of sort of 24 onwards once you start to get into uh, your stride then then you understand where your key strengths are um so there was no I want to be the, the second man on the moon type thing. It was, uh, yeah, I, I want to be great um, at what I do. And uh, my 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 rugby career wasn't going the way I wanted it, um, probably because I wasn't uh, 17 stone at the time. Um, and um, <clears throat> I thought, well, let, let's get into this leadership mode of, of taking people through change, no matter what that looks like. Um, and I've always had a my own definition of change leadership. There's many of them out there, which is, uh, you know, change is all about um, making that change and then leading people and helping people through the change. And, and often a great leader has um, what I call a lot of comfort blankets behind you because you've got to take a few risks here and there. So let, let, let's let's put that into into an M and A perspective because if you if you think about the deal flow of 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 doing a, a, a deal, you would go out and find a target um, acquisition. Um, you would go through a process of of um, initial sort of discussions, etc., and then uh, there's a due diligence involved and so on. But most of the time, the people that you meet are really only a small group, a representative group of the of the final deal because generally it's kept under wraps for a while before everybody gets to know how do you how do you sort of let's call it suss out the the people aspect the culture etc of an organization before you get into that you know to the sort of final stages of closing a deal uh and then we're going to talk about sort of what happens post deal but let's talk about before the deal how do you how do you suss out sort of culture uh, and sort of the people side of things. First point of call that I always go to is, is um, customer feedback. So there's a lot of it online and that often points towards what type of organization it is. And, and if your customer service is not very good, then that would suggest that the, the culture's um, needs developing into good customer focus uh, side of it. So that, that's a kind of first point of call. I, I would always go there first. I mean, you've got your finance side of it, which is in in the for me the back office side of it, and is it a good purchase? Um, and it's not too difficult if you're within an industry. You you will meet people from uh, target acquisition proposals, and you can just talk openly. You know, how's it going in your business? You know, uh, what what's going on? And um, 
you'll get a lot just from 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 talking to people that because you don't the MAs I've been involved in have all been within a sector. So most people know someone in 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 the target acquisition. Um, and I'd always start with the salespeople and because uh, they're always the guys who know it all uh, sorry salespeople, but uh, they often do um they, they know the customer uh, and they, they know what drives uh, margin and things like that and um they will they will often sort of say yeah they, they i'd really want to be in that business or i want people to come across from that business and you see that in another strain which is who's moving who, who shifts from one business to another uh, and that, that that will give you some indicators of the culture. That's very interesting because I think I think you've raised two two key uh, points there. The 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 one is is um, you know compared to let's say when you started your career, the uh, <coughs> the internet and the, and the visibility of companies, customers being able to give co- companies feedback in terms of their experience, their reviews, their reputation online. Is, is a lot more visible than it may have been in the past. And in addition to that, I think the second element you've, you, you've, you've raised there was, um, was a lot to do with uh, being niche. So you, you also understand if you focus on a particular industry, um, you tend to know who the players are. You tend to know in terms of who, who's, who, you know, who's part of that whole ecosystem, if you like. Uh, the third aspect is 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 speaking to the frontline people, and okay. and I'm sure during negotiations of an M and A type of deal, you might have at least a representative. Part of your due diligence, you'd want to speak to one of one or two of the salespeople, have a look at customer records, have a look at the retention of customers. I'm imagining, uh, you you know, deal making is not always just about running um, cash flow forecasts and. No. Doing the the discounted cash flow analysis and, and all that kind of stuff. It's you've got to be able to look under the hood without looking under the hood. So uh, that's a very good point. And then obviously coming to customers, you you know knowing that in in a space people do talk and and I think um, knowing the the customer uh, experience probably is a reflection. Of the way that the company is run, would you would you make? Is, are you saying that is that a is that a fair enough assumption? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, there's another couple of tricks up your sleeve there, the old fashioned way, which is um, if you're going to buy somewhere which is, has got a physical location, there's nothing to stop you going there as a customer um, and, and striking up a conversation with the uh, with with the guys running the uh, the branch there or whatever it is. Nothing to stop that, but also at the same time. You can talk to your your own people, your your friends and family, and say, "Oh, I'm thinking of going to this uh, location for X product. Have you been there before? What's your experience like?" And and you know you can get a lot out of that. Never use them again, or no, they're brilliant. You know, one of the two. Um, so it, it, it's not quite the Sherlock Holmes things, but it's 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 not rocket science in terms of how you can get information without the internet. Um, and um, you know, I'm I'm a firm believer of some of those tactics, which is there's nothing uh, nothing better than actually eyeballing someone and saying, "So, how is it around here?" So, so just just for clarity for the, for the audience, the type of M um, and A, the kind of target entities and and the entities that you you're busy with in the M and A space, they are, are they uh, what is what's what's the the space that that you operate in that you're most comfortable in. In terms of the uh, sector or the the actual yeah the sector the yeah. vertical or you know even even regionally yeah so it's, uh, regionally it's normally the UK Europe um, acquisitions that uh, that I've been involved in sector wise um, FMCG um, low margin uh, anything from um, automotive through to logistics and supply chain um, third party logistics. Uh, in particular and so those are kind of areas that that have worked in but have worked for global organizations so from a cultural perspective if you've got someone in um, Japan as an example who you're the eyes and ears in Europe and they may not know the culture of Europe um, or the pace of what things go at then you have to sort of 
manage that very well. So there's that. That's why I talk about the internal as well as the, the external, um, managing these sort of expectations of the shareholder, uh, even though they may be 10,000 miles away. Yeah, because as soon as it becomes global, then you've got global local and you've got this pressure between global and local um, cultures, I imagine, also time zones and et cetera. And, and when, you, when you start looking at that in FMCG and logistics, you almost get onto a 24-hour clock um you know because yes things keep moving it doesn't sort of oh it's time to knock off now and um, and (laughs) go home (laughs) tell us a bit about that i think i think you know i've been involved in you know that sort of thing the conversations at 8 a.m 9 a.m us time or or tokyo time it's sort of one two in the morning here um and, and the question i was asked myself as a leader is did that conversation need to take place um now, from a shareholder's perspective, they say, well, this might be really important. And then you look at it locally and say, well, actually, either the rules are different. Um, property is a great example of that in, in terms of contamination. Um, in Japan, as example, the contaminator um, is not necessarily the liable person. It's who occupies the site, whereas in Europe, UK, it's the contaminator. So there's a, there's a, there's a big hot potato in, in Japan on... Um, uh, contamination where in the UK is, is less less so in, in terms of well we might be the the person who's on site but the the petrol station on the road is contaminated it is their fault um, so that was a two o'clock in the morning conversation where I did say that didn't need to happen you know mm-hmm. but, uh, I might be a lot of things but I'm not a chemist um, but I do know the law so um, yeah that that's always um, but it, it, it's also that one where. If you take your people aspect of it in terms of cultural of, of work uh, ethic and work rate, uh, you know, you've got some cultures that will work 24-7 um, and, and getting off at sort of 1, 2 in the morning is is, is quite good um, versus sort of more European and to a degree US side of it, which is actually, you know, there is flex. Um, but, you know, the reality is that we've got to try and work around that. Yeah, I think, I think again, when it comes down to people, you also have to manage, I suppose, the local the local environment um, as to the way you use or implement those people's skills in your in the organization. Um, because if I if I look at some of the, uh, the the industries, you talk about food manufacturing, drinks, distribution, automotive industries. Um, so it's everything about products. It's 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 a product-based in, environment. So it, the product is already, I imagine, um, produced. So you would have uh, the thing that I've noticed. I've got uh, you know I've been I've dealt with a few clients of mine that have been in sort of fulfillment, logistics, warehousing, and so on. And often there's there's always this this thing. Yes, I mean there's also temperatures and there's there's other things. So if you've got uh, perishables versus products that 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 don't perish or don't have expiry dates, others do. You also have the movement of stock, uh, etc. And 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 I, the 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 one the one guy I spoke spoke to said that that often many companies have more money in stock than in their bank accounts. Yeah, and if you think about stock and logistics and supply chain and that, it's almost like moving their bank accounts around. Yeah. <laughs> it's at that sort of level of of severity. Uh, do, you, do you have any comment on that as a as a concept? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, when we when we had finished one merger and acquisition, one of our um, or the the solicitors who dealt with it, one of the big four, and they they wanted a. Um, a tour around one of our distribution centers and, and the first question they asked me is what's the most expensive thing in this warehouse and i said well apart from you um the stock and people don't realize that you know you, you have millions and millions of pounds worth of stock and stock in transit and, and that's where it gets a little bit tricky in, in you know that in particular when you're pulling in stuff uh, overseas whether it's sort of insured and um on the boat or it's not or you know where's the freight charge coming from so as soon as it leaves the, the, the port in china or, or wherever um whose whose stock is it um and there's many many interesting discussion i've had with insurance brokers of, of of where that stock 
value lies as it's in transit. Um, and you know, it's a bit of a financial nightmare because you can have goods in transit um, and saying, well, no, it's actually our stock. Well, we're not selling it, therefore it's not. And there's all sorts of different arguments, but the reality is, you know, if you can get to a point where the stock is yours once it gets put into location, um, then um, that, that's the best way of doing it. You, you've then got all the security, et cetera, that goes around it. Um, added to that GDPR um, and what you can and can't look at. Um, you know, I've gone as far as in delivery vehicles, having telematics, cameras, et cetera, um, all put in um, for safety reasons, insurance reasons. Um, and um, once you get over the sort of kickback of Big Brother and actually show that it's it's a benefit um, to the individual, individuals, then uh, it, it's all about what's in it for me. Um, it's, a, it's a selling selling game to people, if you like. Why why should I do this? Uh, what's in it for me? But um, yeah, yeah. I want to I want I want to ask because because the 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 stock ownership concept, and if we look at M and A, because um, a lot of logistics and supply chain companies don't actually physically own the stock; it's someone else's stock, and and you, the caretaker, if you like, of the stock. Um, uh, you know, depending, I suppose, on on the organisation and so on. But you literally just the the guardian for a space of time from the from a time when it becomes, you know, your responsibility up until the time the responsibility has moved on to someone else, and then all the stuff in between is what makes the supply chain or logistics or or, or um, a company that deals with let's say the some of the, the the most crucial part of what makes up a business because if you don't move stock you know the business can can collapse when you're doing m a work what part of a, a logistics entity or a or, or a facility or what do you value i mean what 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 you you can't actually go and value the stock because they don't necessarily own it but what do you value i mean what is what makes up the, a, a really good investment in terms of M&A versus a not so good or a terrible investment. You, yeah, you look at the value of everything. Um, so stock is one element, um, but often what comes with it is the the value of um, assets, property, people, liabilities that go along with people, such as uh, tribunal cases, so on and so forth. So that that that's a value, if you like, of th this is if you have a um, one example that I came across was a contaminated part of a property. Um, so did we want that part of the property? Not really. We need to carve it out. And then you're into negotiation of what the carve out looks at. So, you know, you, you, you've got age stock, you've got all sorts of different things to take into account. And, and it, it gets down to you do the physical um, analysis of it and then you pass it across and say, now it's into negotiation. You know, the, the, this stock is dead or it's a slow mover. Um, this property needs X hundred thousand pounds spending on it. Um, so I want that chipped off. Um, and it, it, it comes down to commercial conversation at the end of the day. Um, but there, you've got to dig deep uh, when it comes to liability. And people people do tend to overlook things like, um, so if you, if you take a, the HR aspect of employee liability and, and you're basically purchasing a group of people across um, and ha how many people of those are at risk, whether it be on long-term sick, whether they've got a claim against the company, um, what, you know, the union activity strikes sort of, you know, very commonplace at the moment. Um, all of that has a value to it. Mm. And, and you can't exactly sort of say, well, yeah, I'll take those 10 people, but not those 10 people because they've got a beef against the company. You put the liability back on the, on the, on, on the company you're buying it off and said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll take that liability, but you pay for it if it goes wrong. So uh, that, that's very, that's very interesting. And, and, and I imagine that um, if you talk about labor and, and so on and, and also timing of M and A deals. So, so if we're looking at M and A and at the moment, the UK is, you know, we, we, we see it, there's a lot more uh, sort of strike action activity than there has been probably for for some time and it seems to almost be 
contagious. I don't know if that's the right word if I'm saying something's going to upset somebody, but it almost seems like everyone is getting onto that sort of um, train at the moment. Do you feel that? Do you get a sense of that? It, it's unusual. Um, I mean, the, the last sort of big strike action that um, I was involved in, we're going back to the, the early 90s, believe it or not. Um, and you've always had ripple effects and, and, and the, the, the economy is a, a sort of catalyst to this. So you, you, it's one of those areas of where and, and the unions have um, sort of grown as well and merged and grown. So it's a where, where can we hit the economy the worst and, um, you know, travel with, with the rails, the ports. Um, obviously, the, the strike action that's happened in um, refuse collection and things like that. It's, it's a, well, let's let's hit, uh, hit things. Because I don't think there's a realisation. It's, it's one of those taken for granted things. And COVID brought this uh, to the fore for um, supply chain logistics. You, you walk into your local supermarket and, and you throw your teddies out of the pram because there's no um, particular type of potato or whatever. Um, and if you take COVID, then Brexit, and um, then a big boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal, you're going to add £8 billion pounds worth of freight behind it. Someone's not going to get their potatoes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and the public take it for granted. Um mm. And now that sort of realization, the, word, the, the the phrase supply chain um, and logistics is, is used very differently these days. Um, so it doesn't take a lot for strike action to uh, damage damage the business. Um, and, and more importantly, it's it, it's a simple thing that you know my my train normally goes at this time. Now it's cancelled. What do I do? Mm. Um, and, and the resilience around you know big part of resilience about well we didn't think about that one did we um well what else can we do uh, and the, the cost of living is um naturally something that's, that fuels this but you know i'm a little bit of a cynic um and i was out in a um, sort of retail shopping park over the weekend and just said to my wife, we've got a cost of living problem, have we? Yeah. You just, you just see the brand new cars, yeah. you see the shopping yeah. baskets are yeah. full, yeah. Um, um, people coming out of the shopping centers with bags and bags of things. I just, <laughs> I think the supply chain is working incredibly well. Yeah. <laughs> and people uh, are yeah. still buying. <laughs> so, um, but you know, that, that that's just a little bit uh, of a cynical side of it. But, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, sometimes it's, it, it takes things like the sort of action that's going across the UK in particular at the moment um, to wake people up a little bit and, and you know understand how valuable these uh, things we take for granted are yeah I just I mean I, from a from a just a practical point of view I, I, not far from from where I am there's a there's a, a, a co-op you know we're in a little regional uh, yeah. sort of uh, co-op stores and What's very interesting, and I want to sort of extrapolate from that, is I think it looks like twice a day they get replenishment because it's not a big store, but twice a day there's a vehicle that comes in, replenishes the, the goods on the shelves, um, and then I see sort of late at night, just before they close, they replenish again. So it looks like they replenish sort of... Let's let's call it the the fresh goods, the the breads and the you know anything that's that's sort of needs to be consumed on the day or uh, purchased on the day, yep. and then at night it looks like they do their more longer term products and that and and that that just that's just one little store, so I imagine there's a whole distribution center behind that. There's a a big a load of people. I mean, there's people have to you know load offload. Um, Although you've got machines to help, you know, you still got to have, dri have drivers driving around, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's this, this, this tendency we went into pre-lockdown. I want to get your view on it is, is a lot of companies were becoming a lot more um, pro um, and it almost became a, a, an accepted thing was this uh, just in time. So we, we make sure that it gets there just in time because of our, because everything has become more and more efficient. 
that everything works out well. But then, like you like you mentioned now about the Suez Canal, that 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 ship got stuck. All of a sudden, one ship gets stuck, and every and a lot of things behind it get get affected. I mean, we have the Ukraine war, etc., and and now all of a sudden, grain is not moving, and 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 so on. So, so you have these these events that because things are so tightly planned further on on down the chain. Tell me about that that whole concept about yeah, up to what point do you do you take into account or have contingency, uh, which costs money? Do you stockpile, which also costs money, versus just in time? I mean, you got to. I mean, with this experience of yours, I mean, this this must be something significant when you, especially looking at M and A, looking at at the movement of people and and the way that the whole world is 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 transitioning. What's your view on that whole just-in-time approach? I think it's driven by something you mentioned earlier, which is the cost of stock. And, you know, the the, the COVID drove a, a shift in behavior in supply chain, which is the just-in-time uh, philosophy was all about, well, mainly about um, your customer service, your demand planning, but also do we need to hold as much stock? Therefore, do we need the capital tied up in big warehouses, et cetera, or, or some, you know, lots of warehouses. Um, and the, the stockpiling element was was one of pricing, driven by price, um, is also driven by, well, what, what our customers think. And, and if you actually take the reality of that um, during COVID, and, and if you were that person who was you know, being like a theme park sort of um, queuing system, getting into the supermarket. When you got into the supermarket and it didn't have any spring onions that was required for a particular recipe, what did you do? You know, you, you didn't sort of think, what's the point of living anymore? You went and bought something else. It was like a, <laughs> a, a proper onion or something. Um, and, and I remember, um, I do it as a real thing that my, my wife came, when I came back and my wife said, Where, where's the creme fraiche? Well, there isn't any, so I, I bought this stuff instead. Well, but that's not what a recipe. Well, we, we just have to adapt, right? Um, and the, the, there is that common sense element. You can't provide if, if you take the sort of just in time for your twice daily deliveries. Um, and, and often, you know, one one of the industries I worked to in, in automotive, um, which was was tires. You know, a customer, a wholesale customer, could get twelve times the delivery from all the regional players. 12 times a day um, if you wanted to. Now, in, in that industry, it's, it's a distressed purchase, so it should be you know, pretty smart um, where you drive in with a puncture. You're not going to say, well, if you know, my next delivery is 48 hours' time, you say, don't worry, I'll, I'll get it here in a few hours. Um, is it so critical on... Um, it, it's, it's that balance of do we, do we stock excess stock um which is very dangerous when you're coming to to fresh um fresh ambient and chilled product chilled not so bad but ambient and, and fresh product um such as your breads etc um but you can't working for premier foods and, and in particular a british bakeries bread plant it was like walking into a brand new factory every day you know, it, it it just it started. It was manufactured. It was out by two in the morning on on the shelves at four in the morning, um, and, and you know, there's nothing like just in time there. That's for <laughs> as, fresh, that's as fresh as it gets. Um, but it worked for that model. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily need to work. And I think that's one of the questions. One of the things that COVID did was shift the demand. So you're just in time to a degree. <coughs> it went a little. Excuse me. It went a little bit out of the window. So whereas one of the big supermarkets or supermarket chains would normally have, let's say, a couple of cases of um, baked beans, as an example, replenished every every so often uh, during the day, then the driver shortage, the fuel increase, the prices that that would command that made, well, let, forget that. Let's just get a whole pallet into a store and break it down. It's got a decent shelf life. And, um, you know, we'll work it that way instead. So there was a, there was a reversal um, of that, uh, which, which to me is more common sense because not just from an environmental point of view where you may have one or two trucks rather than eight or ten, 
um, uh, going in, but also from a common sense point of view of baked beans don't go out of date for, for you know, in a matter of days, so it doesn't really matter. Um, and that, that's kind of when it comes back to the people element. Um, but, you know, one, one, one funny story and is a true story was when I worked for the brewing industry, I was visiting customers um, and one was complaining about the replenishment of uh, sherry. And he'd ordered uh, the prior week a case of sherry because he had a Women's Institute um, uh, event going on. And um, the next week he got the same. And he said, well, I don't need another case. But the replenishment system hadn't clocked it. And there wasn't that human intervention to say, well, that was a spike. Therefore, we need to reset it. Um, and, and that's where the people element has to sort of, you can put as many machines in place and put a process in place, but someone, someone's got to look at it from a common sense point of view and say, that just doesn't look right to me. Um, yeah, that that's fascinating because it's like looking looking at, uh, at at your experience. I mean, we when I when I say okay, I mean, uh, I, I mentioned the co-op, but you, I mean, you were lead in, in site turnaround for uh, flagship distribution centers, um, co-op uh, retail logistics. I mean, that's that's significant. And then also, you've done commercial deals in purchasing uh, products for a quick fit group. Um, uh, significant cost reductions, creating synergies with suppliers to create logistics income um, in Stapleton tires. So, you, I mean, you, you've really worked all the way from fresh bread to onions <laughs> through to tires um, and so on. I just, it's just fascinating the, the spectrum. Does it, I suppose, does it matter really in terms of the product no. um, that much or is it, are the same concepts and principles applied? It, 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 it's, a, it's a great controversy because whatever industry I've worked in, people have said there's nothing like the bread industry, there's nothing like the uh, the grocery industry, there's nothing like the tire industry. Um, but when it comes to logistics, it's the same. Um, and you know, I used to get shot down in flames where people people might say, "Well, you've only been in this business two years. What what do you know about tires?" Um, so I don't know much about tires, but I know about distribution logistics. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's a tin of beans or a tire. The, the principles are the same. The handling might be slightly different, but the principles are exactly the same. Mm. So um, it, it, it's I, I call I call myself a logistician, um, but sometimes all people say, "No, that can't be right." We're, we're specialized products. Yeah, and, and, I, and if, I suppose it's a, it's a common thing. Doesn't matter what industry you're in, your industry is always unique and, and different to everyone else's. But there, there's um, there there are general business principles and, and principles that apply across um, fulfillment all the way through to any kind of supply chain. What's what's interesting though is is I want to just touch on we we spoke about sort of. M&A. Now let's let's talk post M&A. Have you been involved in things like sort of the the sort of the integration side of things, the improvement side of things? The um, when I look at some of your experience, I and mean, we look at Scottish and Newcastle multiple sites, uh, eighty million pound restructuring agenda. I mean that's uh, that's some serious stuff. That so tell us a little bit about sort of your post acquisition or even post merge. Or any kind of restructuring and transformation. So, so again, it starts with those four areas: people, process, finance, customer, and the people is is the biggest element of it. So, upfront communications is is essential. Constant communication is essential on both sides because people sort of think, well, we need to focus on who we're purchasing here, and there there's the unrest um, because they might shut down the head office or whatever. Well, actually. The, the 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 incumbents are buying and thinking well hang on a minute um, does that affect me because there's two of me now um, or there's four of me uh, and that that flow through of communication of this is what we're doing these are the reasons why are we doing it um, this is the kind of investment involved and this is what the end product will look like and the the reality is there will be change there's no doubt there will be change. Mm. Um, and from that point of view, it's very important that the HR teams are very close to 
um, the, the working parties that have been set up or the individuals, whichever. Um, and, and you have to start, I found you, you, the, the most sensitive people to begin with are kind of board level people who are, well, what, what's going to happen to me now that you're buying us? Um, and that ripple effect, you know, can then be quite dramatic if you don't engage at that level. Because um, they'll say, well, they're just going to kick me out. If they kick me out, you're, you're gone as well. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a, bit, a bit of that. And so I would always start with that thing. You know, it, it's a bit like um, when you're setting up a new distribution or setting up a new building, a commercial building people talk about you know what it's going to look like inside the furniture we've got to order that we've got to you know and i'll say well forget that for a minute what about comms have we got a pipe going into the building that will support all our it systems because that's the longest lead time you know if you go in the uk if you go to mr bt you've got a minimum of six weeks lag time so you can buy all the furniture you want doesn't really matter you can be there next day um but <laughs> you can't plug a computer in so forget it um that it does, it's, it's lining that do, those ducks up post acquisition, mm. and you know making people feel part of it, and especially if you're in a dispersed, um, multi-site area. The, the one common thing is a lot of the communications happen at and from head office um, because they're the important people, right? Or, or are they? You know, are, are they important people? <laughs> The eight thousand people out there um, in in the distribution centres in the retail centres, mm. and I've always been one post acquisition saying that the key part here is to be out amongst the people um, because if they're unsure um, and therefore they're probably a bit demotivated, they're the people who are talking to the customer. Now what? You know they're just going to say, "Oh, I don't know. I'm being poor." Um, you know, you might have to go. You might have to go to a competitor. I don't know. So you, you've got to engage that first, um, and and let the process flow go, mm -hmm. in terms of your, your supply chain risk, your supplier agreements, um, you know, the timelines and, and the timelines of project leaders are the important bit here. Mm. Um, so you know, you, you might have this waterfall down cascade from the board that says well this this is what it's going to look like in six months but the reality is well, what where's the fountain off what what the people thinking uh who are out on the coal face if you like um every day um and you, and you saw that in covid with the ppe um element of you know nhs supply chain doing their very level best but in a hospital it wasn't it wasn't enough um, and if you take your, your, your procurement where DNA supply chain was trying to get all the trust to buy from them, if you like, mm. during the crisis, they were buying from wherever they could um, because the, 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 the local management um, in, in hospitals are like, well, what else can we do? We've, we've got to save lives here. So it, that's, a, that's a slightly bigger uh, thing, but... Um, it's just having that methodology of says this is a start point this is the end point what are the bits in the middle that we don't think about um and often there'll be someone uh somewhere who says well well you know what about this aspect what about this supplier agreement that we've got for the next 10 years well we didn't see that whoops you know um there's a whole host of things but you, the the involvement in communications and really doing your due diligence even post position is keep going back over the, the due diligence and understanding um the bits you miss because you will miss bits there's no doubt about it you know it's it, it's a bit of the boat in the Suez canal didn't think of that one um, yeah it's yeah. like oops <laughs> that wasn't in the plan <laughs> yeah I, re I remember building um we built uh my wife and i built a uh our dream home uh some years back about four or five years ago and and when they had to throw the the concrete slabs and and so on the the these big um uh cement trucks these ones you know those ones that turn like that and had to pipe it in and so on the builder the construction guys had built the the external wall too early they had to break it back down 
to get the trucks in to, to, to pour the slabs. It's like, didn't you think of that? It's like, oh, no, no we didn't, it wasn't, we, we didn't, we just didn't, that just didn't, uh, wasn't part of the plan. And I'm just thinking about logistics and, and all that. I mean, there are things that happen. I mean, take, for instance, uh, with the events of, let's say, the, 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 the late Queen's funeral, for instance. I mean, how do you plan for something like that? You have, would have vehicles and that that would need to deliver things. You would need to now plan alternate routes, for instance. You would, I mean, there's a there's people moving that would generally not be moving, and they now, um, you know, in different places, but still the the work must go on. And I think it's almost an unforgivable um, in industry, if you like, because people demand if they walk <laughs> they walk into a store, they walk into a place, they they just want supply, and and they would give you a, a, potentially a bad review. If you just can't supply, and it's but there's so many things behind the scenes that people are totally unaware of. That's why I find it such a fascinating, fascinating industry. And there's also big movements. I want to. You talk about 25 plus years career, and you must have seen. And I want to just touch on the technology aspects of 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 your career because you must have seen technology come in from the early 90s. I'm guessing through to today um, where you now even have, I don't know what they, do they call them dark or black warehouses or dark? I don't know where they have just black. robots yeah. Yeah. where we're in, entirely automated. You know, there's not the warehousing and all that and the pick pack and dispatch, literally the truck pulls in and there's some kind of robot doing everything and from, you know, 25 plus years ago. I'm sure that, that, that was just a pipe dream at some stage. The transition is, I mean, it's it's not in the bigger picture of things, it's not that long. But so much has happened. Tell me, tell me your experience from almost no to little, very little technology, because I think it was there's probably more stock control and tracking just from a very database-driven point of view to today, where you even have things like proof of delivery and the text messaging. I just know even Royal Mail, for instance, I order something and I get five text messages in between and an email and a this and a that to tell me where my package and my parcel is. I've got tracking numbers. I mean, it's just, it's, the, it's day and night, the comparison. So I don't know, what is your experience in terms of adopting those changes? I think you have to do it for the right reason. Um, you know, logistics, technology, um, Yes, it's advanced, but you had, if you take your black warehouses um, and automatic guided vehicles, probably 20, 30 years ago, some some people had that, uh, especially in the military. Um, so we take a lot from um, putting a man on the moon, if you like, and applying that to um, to logistics. So it's, it's been, it's, it's more about the handling side of things, um, you know, the, the tracking element of where's, where's your product. Um, and from that, again, I'm, I'm slightly sort of thinking, do I care where my product is unless I have paid for it to come t tomorrow? Um, and I left it, unless I'm my 14-year-old boy who's got a party to go to and his T-shirt's not here on time, then to me it's a bit of a so what, as long as I get it. Um, so you, you, there has been advances, and it's more about the speed and the pace at which transactions happen now and the visibility um, that, that's important uh, advance for me, not necessarily having um, robotics or um, AI, because there are some products that just don't lend themselves to that. You know, tires is a good example of can you do a single pick tire? It's very difficult. Um, can you put an RF tag in a tire? No, because there's so much wire in, in tire. So just excuse the uh, <laughs> the, the connection completely. Um, and you know, smart uh, smart tires and things like that are still something in the future. The question is, do you need them? Um, so I think the visibility on stock inventory and tracking, trace and track um, on important bits that are just so important for the supplier because, you know, stock loss in somewhere like Walmart going back a decade was huge. I mean, we're talking billions. Um, until they invested in RF technology. Um, and then, you know, that worked for that business. 
traceability um, is is just as important for the supplier as for the person who's actually receiving it. Um, for me, the the principles of warehousing in terms of building is is where I think the real technologies come in 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 terms of how high you can go now. You've got 18 meters, 20 meter up, even more, um, and the fact that you can get a, an order picker up there. So your your cube your cube utilization is is much in advance, but that's only good in some some countries because in Europe some countries are a high limit, so they just have big fat warehouses rather than tall skinny warehouses sort of thing. So a technical phrase there, um, <laughs> um, and um, you know all, all sorts of uh, advance on on. On the racking systems, on the protection, um, the efficiency, and especially with the energy, you know that, that's where it's at at the moment in terms of sustainability. Of do you use gas for the truck? Do you electric? Do you do you go electric on on your on your delivery vehicles, so on and so forth? Um, and, and you know my kind of view is it's still juries out on 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 that uh, unless you're doing the last mile stuff in the middle of London or wherever. And you can you can have a, um, a truck that does 15 miles on a, a charge. It doesn't really matter because it's, it's only doing shuttle runs. Um, so the, it comes down to, for me, the technology has been um, of great benefit when it comes to inventory control, collaboration with suppliers, and track and traceability, um, and ultimately the the customer demand. Because for, for, for my, my observation is that that the connectivity between entities has improved significantly. So from your manufacturing, even from raw materials, et cetera, through to manufacturing, through to the warehousing, pick, pack, and dispatch, and out into distribution and so on, the connection between entities has improved. Uh, this is my observation. You left to no, tell no, me if I'm no, right. It has. it has. You know, you, you know when um, a pallet of stuff has, has left the shore of, you know, Far Eastern country and, and you know where it is on, on the sea, which then has a big knock-on effect to whether you incur charges at port and so on and so forth and how quickly you can get it into the into the supply chain in your particular country. And you can do better planning because you have better information and, better, as you mentioned, visibility is, is critical. So what, what I'm seeing is a lot of really good communication across entities and into the different, um, uh, let's call it, methods or modes of transport. I want to just quickly touch on two quick aspects. We only got about eight minutes left, so I want to yeah. just touch on two two aspects the one is the property acquisition, disposal, sale, and leaseback. Um, that that at one stage, I don't know. It seems to be go go through phases. Is whether you own your own property and build it out, or do you go out and 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 sort of uh, lease properties, etc., or do you separate your property portfolio to your operations? Just give us your sort of view in terms of the trends right now. Where you know what what are you seeing? So you got rental increase um, in the commercial market um, through, throughout the regions. Um, there's a, there's a huge shortage, um, so people will pay a premium. Um, there's also without getting too technical, different different types of um, category of um, planning consent. So whether you're retail or whether you're warehousing distribution, as an example, um, which drives the uh, the cost per square foot. In terms of, um, it, it changes through through each year. It changes. If you'd asked me five years ago, I'd say buy, because you could buy money um, cheap. You know, the interest rates were cheap. Now, slightly different, um, but um, that that can that can change in a year so you know my experience we we did a, well, i did a property purchase of a number of retail locations because it was the right time to do it it was around about i don't know 2011 2012 where the recession was still um well, 28 was 2008 there was no buildings being built in logistics and supply chain so that, so that was the right thing to do come 2018 19 um, where there was a shortage and the right thing to do for the business was sell. I sold three big warehouses 
and, and you know double the money that I paid for them. Um, and that's a commercial decision whether you, whether you need that cash or not. So at the moment, um, you've still got a shortage of logistics and distribution centres. Um, it's no different to the housing market. You know how how many houses are we short in the UK? Lots. Lots, um, yes, um, and it, that that will ultimately drive the the size of um, locations because you, you you know certain some retailers retailers recently have gone big big you know million square foot plus two million in some, um, and I think that that was done probably in four or five years ago, which was the right thing to do commercially then. If, if you start thinking about that today, mm. you you might have a different view on life. Um, so it, it it it's down to the economy. Um, it's down to how quickly you react. You know, one thing's for sure: as mortgage rates go up, you know, rent rent increases um, on 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 the up con con consistently, mm. and, and it doesn't matter where. You know, that that's one thing that. We used to. I used to look at as well. It's all down southeast, isn't it? And southwest. That's where where the big increases are. Well, no, it's it's it's, it's all over the country now. Um, so that that would drive where you'd actually decide to have a strategic location. Um, and then you've got to do the cost of serve element. Is it cheaper to have a warehouse thirty miles away where you'd normally have it, but then run the transport costs? So uh, that's why I involve finance. <laughs> So I want, to, I, want, I want to use that then maybe as a segue into the into the sort of the hot topic um, today the or these days is this whole um, environmental uh, impact and sustainability and and so on and even things like packaging is changing. Um, people have got this big thing about plastic, which which is rightly so, but um you know the, the 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 moving of goods you know you want something that's not going to spill break or damage but at the same time you want to be sustainable and environmentally friendly i mean there's there's all that and then uh, the other thing is things like shipping costs um is quite you know moving vehicles around non-stop having a vehicle moving up and down emitting all kinds of gases um is a, is problematic the the ships in in the sea same same story i think they they guzzle huge amounts of <laughs> diesel i think it is and 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 all that and 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 the environmental impact of the of this industry itself is do you think that that's a that's an issue do you get challenged by that sometimes Definitely. I mean, it's something you report now on um, on your annual annual statements, anyway. Um, and and the sort of net zero element is constantly being driven in terms of um, what's what's called ESOS, which is environmental say uh, environmental um, saving opportunity scheme. And as technology advances, then there's there's two two approaches. One that normally saves you money, uh, be it's right for the environment. So if you take LED lighting as an example of something that's come on in leaps and bounds, um, it, 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 the initial outlay, you should get a return on your capital within two or three years. Um, but more importantly, you, you knock out 50% of the energy you use as well and any carbon, um, your carbon burning. So that where it comes trickier is your, your boats and your trucks. Um, you know, I read recently within the last couple of days was a first um, uh, electronic ferry that's, that's, uh, that's on trial at the moment. Um, it, it very much comes down to is it if you take the UK um, and you have an electric vehicle, does it cost you more now to charge your vehicle um, because of the price of electricity? And and this was something I was asking. Maybe five years ago, um, when I was looking after fleet fleets uh, of cars and vehicles, is electric's the way to go? Well, is it? Where are we going to get electricity from? And that's without Ukraine uh, war. Where are we going to get electricity from? We, we've already seen blackouts and price increases, and that's only going one way. Mm -hmm. That's just been personified by the last twelve months. Um, so you know, if you if if you're sort of looking 
more so in the east, um, eastern uh, provinces, countries, they're looking more towards hydrogen. So, you know, you can't, I think Tesla did actually um, come out with an electric Arctic articulated vehicle um, and, and, and its claim to fame was probably it did 0 to 60 in about five seconds, which great um but would it would it really if, you, if you're allowed to go that fast anyway so yeah. <laughs> will it will it work run across australia or us um and, yes. and, and those are the challenges that, that that will be ongoing for some time i'd imagine um but sustainability um people going for your net, net zero has to be big on the agenda and, and, uh, and rightly so. So I, I want to just, um, as we get to the end of the, the podcast, uh, Ian, it's been fascinating listening to you. I probably, uh, I've got a gazillion other questions. I'd, but um, <laughs> I just, I want to, I want to sort of just maybe ask you, uh, do you have just a few sort of one, one or two um, takeaways from this uh, podcast, something you can share that's, that you think the audience will appreciate? Yeah, I, I, I come back to those four areas, um, you know, people, process, property and finance in, in, in M&As, but not just M&As, in, in everything you do. Um, and I think it's important to understand the operation that you run. Um, so you, you've got your core strategy of, of where the business wants to be. It's, it's how that's disseminated then to uh, the people who have to deliver it. Um, and, and at the end of the day, that, that's a difficult part because that actually means effort and getting out. And, um, you know, there was one thing I always used to say that we have a lot of meetings about these things. The meetings are important, um, but uh, they're a lot easier than actually doing it and talking about it rather than actually going out and delivering it. Um, and, and that's the sort of engagement element that, that kind of people rely on HR for that, you know. That's HR's job, isn't it? You know, their, their engagement and all that sort of stuff. Well, no, actually, it's you as, as, the, as the operator. You're the operator. You're the manager. You're the you're the 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 person who should be, you know, whether it be CEO um, all the way down to uh, an administrator. Understand your business. Um, understand the people who, who are operating your business, and that means I'm afraid getting out and about and, and doing some uh, doing some legwork. But. Yeah, just- uh, Walk on the shop floor and actually understand what's going on. I want to. I want to uh, finish off the podcast if, um, if if I may. Then and and, and ask um, how do people get hold of you? I mean, if 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 they want to get in touch with you, what are you doing now? As in, sort of, you know, what do you do for for people, and and, and how can they get hold of you? Um, if yeah. you can share that with us. Yeah, I mean, the easiest, the easiest, the most direct route would be LinkedIn. Um, that's uh, that's probably the easiest way to, to find find me. In terms of uh, what I'm doing now is, is ad hoc consultancy um, and, and looking into people's um, fix 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 it type of stuff. It's a case of you know at a moment with with everything that's going on, then there's a need for someone to come in and quickly have a look and. and have their sort of experience and say, well, we can we can work with this very quickly, um, and uh, you know that that's for me that's that's the rewarding stuff where you can go in and make a difference very quickly. Uh, so that, that's kind of what I'm up to at the moment. Love it, love it. Yeah, and thank you very much for being a guest today. If you don't mind holding on the line, I'm going to just say goodbye to our audience and, and I'll have a chat to you now. Um, let me just. Uh, pop myself on the screen. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us today on another episode of 100 Days and Beyond, the, the podcast really that focuses on the M&A world, post-merger integration, and all the special people behind the scenes that that make things work. And um, the economy and, and the way we, we see the world often is only the glimpse, the little those little moments that we get to see things, maybe packed on a shelf in a in a local grocery store uh, or when you go and buy tires, you have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. What I, what I have picked up today from, from Ian is not only his wealth of experience, but the, the ability to fully and completely understand the principles and the processes around logistics, supply chain, um, 
and all the things that are required to, to make a supply chain and that work and work well. But in addition to that, there's that whole leadership um, element that kept on coming through for me during the episode that Ian displays the ability to get on site, to fully understand relatively quickly in a very short space of time, when no matter what the business is, especially in the FMCG environment, but understand, take the lead and being able to, to deal with the issues um, at hand. Um, I would think of uh, Ian as a great asset for any company with a, with a logistics and supply chain environment uh, and in warehousing and all that. And I think it'll be a massive uh, um, benefit for any company to make use of someone like Ian. Thank you very much, Ian. And thank you for, for our audience for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on our ne next episode of 100 Days and Beyond. Great. Thank you very much.